Revelation chapter 22. Well, we made it to the end of the book. <laughs> it's been a year in coming. Revelation 22. We're going to begin reading this morning with verse 6. So let's read the end of the story together, church. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me and to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord to us as church and the epilogue to this tremendous book that we've been studying for the last year. So in verse 6, if we go back, we'll work through it here and I'll explain some and reread some and and we'll talk about what's happening here as we wrap up the study. But in verse 6, the, the angel that is serving as John's guide gives testimony to the veracity. If that's a new word, the trustworthiness, the truthfulness of the revelation. Uh, if you've been joining us on Wednesday nights for our Wednesday night Bible study, I know many of you have other obligations being helping out in Awana, serving in Awana, serving in our youth ministry, and I'm very thankful for that. And we've had many new people come to Wednesday night Bible study, and just a little commercial, if you're not one of them, come and join us. 
Wednesday nights at 6.30. We've been studying through the doctrines of the faith, and this is certainly something that if you've been a part of that study, you, you get this, because we've been drilling down on this idea as we've looked at the doctrine of bibliology, the study of the Bible, and that the Word of God is trustworthy. The Word of God is true. All Scripture is true. And the reason for that is all Scripture is true because it's based in the character of God. God is true. God is trustworthy. The ultimate source of this revelation, the book we've been studying, is Jesus himself. The eternal Son of God does not lie. The eternal Son of God is trustworthy and true. And John has given testimony to this. Jesus actually speaking in, in some of these passages. Jesus is the faithful witness, Revelation 1.5. Jesus is the true one. Revelation 3, 7, Jesus is the true witness, chapter 3, verse 14, and Jesus is faithful and true in chapter 19, verse 11. But understand that point, though, that the veracity of Scripture, the trustworthiness of the revelation is centered in the trustworthiness of our God. Amen? And then the angel tells John that these events must soon take place. And, and this is encouragement to us. When, when Revelation has made this point, and it's made it several times throughout the Revelation, that, that this is at hand, that this might, would soon happen, it's meant to be encouragement to us, to the church. Encouragement that we would watch and pray. The idea that the church is to watch and pray for the Lord's return appears throughout the New Testament. We've covered this ground but a lot of this message will be a recap and a review of things we've already talked about as the book is now coming to a close. But the Apostle Paul had written to the Romans, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. James had written and said, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. It's a great phrase. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Peter had written, the end of all things is at hand, is near, is imminent. We know other ways to say that. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What's the message of all these passages that we're looking at here in the New Testament? Peter, James, Paul, John, the Revelation, wake up. Church, we need to wake up from our slumber, if indeed we are slumbering. We need to be patient. We need to establish our hearts to be self-controlled, to be sober-minded. We need to watch and pray, as Christ said. The church at every age is to wait for the return of Christ because it could indeed happen at any moment. Amen? And then in our passage, Jesus speaks, and he affirms this very idea. Look at verse 7 back in Revelation 22. Christ says, and behold, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So how do we do that? How do we keep the words of Revelation? As with doing anything, the first step, I believe, is desire. If the question is, how do we keep the words of this prophecy, I think step one is that we have to want to. 
And maybe that's the biggest hurdle for us to overcome in our lives. We have to desire to keep the words of this book, church. And I would say it has to become our consuming desire. Why? Because so much wars against that in our lives. But as I shared last week, I fear that we are so entangled. My fear is that we, myself included, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm talking about us as people. We are so entangled in the affairs of this world that we give so little thought to the next world. May the words of the lover of our souls stir us from slumber this morning. Jesus said, therefore, stay awake. Stay awake, for you do not know on the day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He gives, Christ gives us an argument from common sense. I mean, if tonight you knew that at 2.30 in the morning someone was going to break into your home and potentially hurt your family, I know this crowd, some of you would be locked and loaded, ready to go. And so Christ gives a very clear example to illustrate the point of what he's trying to say, of how we ought to stay awake and be ready for his return. He says that he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Readiness, brothers and sisters, consists of abiding with Jesus. I'm just going to give you some basic principles from the New Testament here. What does it mean to be ready? It consists with abiding with Jesus in close relationship. John chapter 15, following closely after him as our rabbi, as our teacher. Our desire ought to be one one step behind our rabbi and to follow him that closely. Readiness consists of being faithful to the gospel, Yes, certainly as a church, certainly. As I've talked about often over the last couple of years, we as a church need to stay grounded and centered and rooted in the gospel. It's our foundation. Because quite simply, you're not a church if your foundation is not the gospel. Paul makes that so crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, be careful how you build, But the foundation, if you are a church, if you're a part of this thing called the church, then you are on the foundation of the gospel. And if you're not on the foundation of the gospel, you can call yourself whatever you want, but you're not a church. And so stay rooted in the gospel. And I think we also need to stay rooted in the gospel in our own lives. I need to continually preach the gospel to myself. Because it's the only thing that keeps me and you from becoming self-centered and arrogant and looking down on other people. Because if I'm constantly rehearsing the gospel in my own heart, I realize that I am hopelessly lost in my sins without Jesus Christ. And then why should I ever look down on anybody else? 
Why should I ever see anyone else's sin as somehow being different or greater than my own? I know this heart. I know how wicked it can be. And without Christ, I would be lost in that despair. You too? I hope you've realized that about yourself. Next in our passage, we're reminded of the the sinfulness of the human heart and, and just how badly we all need a Savior. Immediately after hearing the voice of Jesus, John repeats the same sin. If you've been tracking with us, It was only a few messages ago, we were back in chapter 19, and we saw him do the same thing in verse 10. Man, don't we see how wicked we are, church? How much we are like that dog who goes back to the vomit. This is the Apostle John. This was one of Jesus' best friends. He was one of the inner three. He lived with them for a few years. He knew Christ intimately. He'd spent his life at this point. He's a very old man, probably near his death, on the island of Patmos, in exile. This is the Apostle John, and he goes back to the vomit one more time. So we see here in verse 8, he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. I think he makes that point intentionally because of what he's about to write. He says, when I heard and saw them, Here's how I responded. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And John again commits flagrant idolatry. I'm not being judgmental. I don't know about you, but I can relate to John. Because I, this is what I know about me. I can be on the mountaintop with Jesus, enjoying the abundant life that he has given me, and then minutes later, purposefully descend into the darkest valley, discarding his treasures and searching for trash. With intentionality, go from the mountain to the valley. Am I all alone here today? You're, you're dark silhouettes. It's hard to see people. Is there anybody out there who's with me today? Is there anyone else who relates to John here who would say, yes, I can be with the Lord. I can be in his presence. I can be in prayer. And seconds later, the most vile, awful things enter my mind. I can relate to this. My heart left to itself still craves sin. And if it were not for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is transforming me and you, I know who I would be. Brothers and sisters, don't look at your sin as a small thing. Don't look upon your sin as being something small. See it for what it truly is. Don't don't be that person in the parable that Jesus told who only owed a little. What I believe is that we don't really, at least most people I've talked to about this parable don't get it, don't understand what Christ is saying there. You know, the the parable that the two people who are forgiven and one owed much and one only owed a little. It's not that that religious person had less to atone for. 
It's not that that Pharisee in the story had only sinned a little and and that the great sinner, quote, unquote, right, had sinned much. I don't believe that's what Christ is saying there at all because that would be in contradiction to so much of the New Testament. What it is is that one person understood the sinfulness of their own heart. They knew how greatly they had sinned, and the other person had no idea of how great a sinner they, they were. One thought they only owed a little. Don't misunderstand that parable. The problem with that person is how they see their sin. Be more like John Newton. You know, the slave ship captain who after his conversion to Christ became a pastor, and he wrote this little song. I don't know if you guys know it. It was called Amazing Grace. Maybe you sang that once or twice in your life. Be more like John Newton, who wrote, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Amen? Amen. Friends, there are only two types of people on this planet, those who know they're great sinners and those who don't know they're great sinners. The issue is awareness. We are all great sinners, owing a debt that we could never possibly repay. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for his grace. Praise the Lord for his mercy, the forgiveness that we fall on at the foot of the cross. Without him, without the cross, we would be hopelessly lost. Well, the angel, of course, in the story corrects John and redirects him to the only appropriate focal point of worship. The angel does what he ought to do here. He doesn't receive John's worship. He redirects it. He said to John, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. The angel saying, John, you and I, we're on the same playing field here. We're, we're part of the same team. We're part of the same platoon And we have one captain, and his name is Jesus Christ. And that's who we ought to worship. That's who we ought to serve. He is our captain. He is the one that we ought to serve. And this reminds me of that the great moment in the cave of Adullam. I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament where the three mightiest of men in David's army, risk their lives to bring King David a drink of water. You know this story, right? The Philistines are kicking Israel's butt at this point, and David is hiding out. He goes to his keep, his refuge in the cave of Adullam, and he makes this, like, passing comment. I really believe that. I don't think it was an order I think he's just longing for something. He says, oh, I wish I could have a drink of water from this one well right by the gate in Bethlehem, the city that he had grown up in, his city. And he knew this one well, and I don't know what it was about that water. Maybe it was really clean. Maybe it tasted good. I have no idea. Maybe it was just childhood memories of getting a drink from that well. But he just makes this statement, and these three mightiest of his men, I I looked at the distance on this yesterday, it's 25 miles from the cave of Adullam to Bethlehem. 
these three mightiest of men break through the Philistine lines and travel 25 miles with a bucket, fill it up, and bring it back to David. They get in, they fight their way in, they get the water, and they fight their way back out. And they bring it to David in, in the cave of Adullam. And what does he do? You, most of you know this story. Upon receiving their gift, David pours it out on the ground before the Lord. They've just risked their lives. They've traveled 50 miles to get him a drink. And David dumps it out before God. And I'm sure shock and awe and their jaws dropped. And like, why on earth, David, did you do this? But for David, this was a beautiful moment of worship. And it was a beautiful moment of demonstrating his own humility. Because as messed up as David was, just like the Apostle John, just like me, just like you, as messed up as David was, he was still a man after God's own heart. And he knew his sinful heart. He understood who he was. He knew that he was not worthy of the blood of his brothers. That the worship that those three men did in getting him that drink was something that he was not worthy of. There's only one who's worthy of that kind of worship, church, and it's God and God alone. It's Jehovah God. And so David pours out a drink offering to his God. He was not worth the blood of his brothers. God and God alone is worthy of that kind of act of worship. Returning to Revelation chapter 22, the angel next says something that's really hard for us to understand. This is definitely one of those passages in the Bible that you kind of scratch your head and think, what? What am I supposed to hear from this? The angel says to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. But the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. As I looked at that passage, I definitely had to throw out a lifeline to someone smarter than me. <laughs> and so I went to Bible scholar Robert Mounts, and I really like what he writes here. He says, the major thrust of this verse is that since the end time is now at hand, people are certain to reap the consequences of the kind of lives they have led. The time arrives when change is impossible because character has already been determined by a lifetime of habitual action. The arrival of the end forecloses any possibility of alteration. What's Robert Mount saying? He's simply saying this. There will come a moment in time when all of us will be locked into the decision we've made concerning Jesus Christ. Now, let us not hear that in dismay over loved ones who are still lost in their sins, friends. Let us hear that and be encouraged to go out and share the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Amen? Because time is short, and we don't know what opportunities still remain to share the gospel of Jesus with those that we love and care for with friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members. So let us understand that there will come a day when everyone will be locked into the decision that they have made about Christ. But that day is not yet. We still have opportunity with them. 
The angel here is certainly not encouraging evil. The angel here is stating a reality. That's why I believe we ought to understand these verses. The angel is stating a reality, not encouraging evil. Evil will only die when Jesus kills it. And Jesus will. The day will come, we've studied this in Revelation, where Jesus will end evil, and it will be done. But until then, it will exist. And we need to share the gospel in love to those who don't yet know Christ. And then in verse 12, Jesus speaks again. He says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. We've we've certainly covered this ground, but I want to say to you one more time, We've seen this many times, but we are saved by grace, but we are judged by works. Please, in your understanding of the grace of God and in your belief and in your trust, knowing that it's through the blood of Christ and the cross that you have been saved, and that is absolutely true. There's nothing you could do in any shape or form to earn your salvation. You trust in Christ for your salvation, but please don't Believe that and then think that your works don't matter. What we do in this life after our salvation absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. We will be rewarded for the good that we've done in this life. Just a few reminders on that note. Proverbs 24, 12 says, If you say, behold, we didn't know this. We didn't know about people in poverty. We didn't know that people struggle in the chains of addiction. We didn't know how hard life could be for those with a mental illness. We didn't know about the plight of of single moms and those who try to work two or three jobs and, and raise their children at the same time. We didn't know. We didn't know what was going on in the world. We didn't know about sex trafficking We didn't know about a whole host of issues that are happening in our world today. And Solomon here in the book of Proverbs says, But we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his, what's the word? Work. To what you've done about this. It's the very point of the parable Jesus tells about the sheep and the goats. You're not saved, church, by visiting a prisoner or feeding the hungry or clothing the naked. That would be in contradiction to so much of the New Testament. That's not what saves you. But absolutely, once you're saved, you ought to be characterized as someone who visits a prisoner, feeds the hungry, clothes the naked, gives shelter to those who need shelter. Amen? That's the characteristic of a sheep. That's what Jesus is saying in that parable. Still in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17.10, Jehovah says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Listen, I, I have nothing against Bible studies, obviously. What am I doing right now? <laughs> nothing against preaching. But some Christians, they get so addicted to preaching and Bible studies. They got their podcasts going, their YouTube and pastors. That's great. That's all good stuff. 
But you know what's really important with what you do with that? is is what you do with that. <laughs> we, we get so fed and so fat because we're not out there actually living it. We have to act on what we study in God's Word. Amen? The fruit of his deeds is what Jehovah says here. Just in case you're tempted to think this is just an Old Testament idea, Paul says in Romans, he will render to each one according to his works. 1 Peter 1.17, Peter says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So back to Revelation 22, Jesus testifies about himself here in verse 13. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Jesus here applies three titles to himself that are often used of God the Father in Scripture. And these are names that set him apart from the rest of creation. What should we understand this? How should we understand this about Christ here? There never was a time in eternity past when Jesus was not. There never will be a time in eternity future when he will not be. And then Jesus speaks about those who trust in him for salvation in verse 14. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now, we saw an earlier passage in Revelation where the recipients of the robes were given those robes, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But this verse certainly implies that there is a part here that we have after our salvation, we play a part in our sanctification. And that fits so well with the rest of the New Testament, brothers and sisters, because how many times does Paul say, do this or don't do this or, or put on this or put off that? And so we certainly have a role to play in our sanctification. Bible scholar Grant Osborne writes about this and says, the image of washing in both places speaks of spiritual revival, ridding one's life of the accumulated filth of this world and living in purity before God. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you can own this and say, yeah, there are definitely times where I allow myself to get filthy with the world. And I just need to be washed again. It's not a salvation issue. It's a sanctification issue. It's how we grow closer to the Lord. Then Jesus contrasts in the next verse his own with those who reject Christ and cling to their sin and to their death. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I don't think we should be hung up on these individual words. We've seen this before in Revelation. What is, what's being given to us here is descriptors of those who never trusted in Christ for their salvation. They're not being described as someone who's trusting in Christ, who's been washed in the blood of the Lamb, as someone whose name is written in the, the Lamb's book of life, but on the contrary, they're still in their sins. What are some of those sins? They're given for us here. Sorcery, sexual immorality, murder, idolatry. These are the things that still characterize this group of individuals. 
And then Jesus stresses that the revelation is not just intended for John, but for the entire church. Look at verse 16 with me. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Couple points on this first. First of all, the you there, you, you wouldn't know this in English, but in Greek, it's very obvious the you in this verse is plural. And so what did John hear from this? John heard once again that this revelation wasn't just for him, but that it was for the entire church. And then also don't miss how Jesus identifies himself in that verse. He's the root and the descendant of David. He's the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy from Isaiah. And what is that prophecy in Isaiah 11.1? They shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall be shall bear fruit. And also he describes himself as the morning star. Jesus is the promise that the long night of tribulation that the church has endured is all but over and that a new day is about to dawn. And then we see friends that this invitation is open to all. If we look at verse 17, Revelation 22:17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I, I really hope we have not missed the missions emphasis, the world missions emphasis in Revelation as we've studied. It's been all throughout the book. We see it time and time again. It's people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be in the presence of the Lamb in eternity, will be a part of the new city. We've seen that idea so many times. And so let this idea compel us to be engaged in world missions. The next two verses offer a warning to anyone who would purposefully use the words of Revelation inappropriately. And this bears a little bit of explanation and we'll, we'll be rounding towards home here. But here... What's written is, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of, of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Again, Grant Osborne writes about this and says, these verses have often been, don't miss this, this is so important for how we relate to Christians from other Christian denominations. This is intensely practical for us. He writes, these verses have often been misused to denigrate any theology different from the one we prefer. I remember, not this church, but being in other ministries as a young man, as an adult, and hearing people say ignorant things standing up giving a testimony and saying something like, I was saved out of a Lutheran church. Brothers and sisters, let's not do that. Let's not say those things. Now, maybe that individual had been a part of a Lutheran church, and then maybe at a different church, they first they understood the gospel. But Lutheran churches teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's be careful here. And, and Grant Osborne makes a very important point in this passage. These verses have often been misused to denigrate, to, to make fun of, to criticize any theology different than ours. 
And we in the Baptist church have to realize we've done this. We've made this mistake before. A false teacher is not anyone from, any, from another theological perspective, but someone who restructures the Christian faith and introduces heresy, views that counter the cardinal key core, would be other words for that, doctrines, foundational doctrines, and destroy the nucleus of the Christian faith. So what's the point that's being made here in these verses? Church, it's a serious matter. It is a very serious matter to purposefully tamper with God's Word, to do it with intentionality. And, and just a, a few quick passages on that, Deuteronomy 4, 2, God says to Israel in the Old Testament, he says, you shall not add to the words that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Paul writes to the Galatians, I am astonished, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's the type of issue we're talking about at the end of Revelation here. Those who would strip a church of the gospel message. Those who would redefine God in a way that he has said he is not. Those who would tamper with salvation. The key doctrines of our faith. Not whether or not a church is Calvinist or Arminian. Not whether or not a, a church believes in eternal security or, or they don't believe in eternal security. Those, we have stances on those. We believe certain things that the Bible teaches, but we do so with grace and humility, understanding, brothers and sisters, that we're doing our absolute best to try to understand what this book says. And I am trusting that pastors from Wesleyan churches and Methodist churches and Lutheran churches and Bible churches and so many other wonderful denominations within the bride of Christ and Christianity are also doing their absolute best to try to understand it. We need to have humility when we approach the Word of God. We need to try to understand what God is saying to us, and we have to have positions on things. We have to say, well, we either believe... In this, or we believe in this, we have to, we have to pick a, a spot to land in, but we also need to have grace for those who see it differently. We need to be discerning where I think these verses are so important. We do need to be discerning, church, with who we listen to. Don't listen, and I'm talking about podcasts, YouTube, all of that. Don't listen to those who have abandoned the gospel and don't listen to those who have added to the gospel. Does that make sense? Be discerning in who you're letting fill your mind. And, and if they've walked away from the gospel and, and you hear it and you know it, then turn them off. Abandon that teaching. And, and, and conversely, don't listen to those who have added all kinds of extra things. I'm not even going to go into that, but to the gospel message. Well, we come to the end. Here are the last two verses. The last two verses in this great book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.
Bible scholar Robert Mounts, just one more time, says, at the very close of the book is the confession that the answers to the problems of life do not lie in people's ability to create a better world, but in the return of the one whose sovereign power controls the course of human affairs. Redemptive history remains incomplete until Christ returns. What's he saying? Let's do all the good that we can. Let's be involved, engaged in culture, and let's do as much good as we can in our lifetimes because our works matter. We've seen that time and time again in the text. But we also know that we are not creating a utopia. We can't do that. We can't build the kingdom. I hear Christians talk that way. Well, we're building the kingdom of God. You're not building the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming back, and he will bring the kingdom of God. Amen.